Hi, Daniel. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much, Borat. Great to see you. It's always my pleasure to see you. So I would like the first question. Can you provide an overview of Vanda Fund and its investment strategy? What is the fund size and what are the stages you invest in and the, the other details? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So um, Wanda, Wanda Capital. <clears throat> Wanda Capital is an early stage investor. We do typically seed to Series A investments in MENA. That means Middle East, North Africa. In ICT software companies, so information communication technology companies. Um, so we don't necessarily invest in hardware, but in software companies. Uh, in terms of industries and models, uh, there we are agnostic. Um, so we don't have a specific focus, let's say, on fintech or edtech. Um, we are we're kind of opportunistic there in that sense. Um, we've been around for a long time. So we invest currently out of a, what we call evergreen vehicle. You can call it also um, uh, a kind of a permanent fund uh, structure. So we had a fund before. Um, classical setup um, with LPs. Uh, this has changed. Um, we, we are now kind of a single uh, LP, GP uh, investment vehicle with Fadi Randur. And I can maybe tell a little bit more later about Fadi Randur. And um, this has been for the last kind of um, nearly four years, uh, the situation. And before that, we had a fund number one, which was a $70 million fund. Uh, kind of same focus. Um, Seed Series A, uh, MENA, um, but the difference was we wrote bigger checks. Um, we also took, let's say, more active roles on the governance. We took board seats. Uh, these days, we kind of typically co-invest. We might co-lead. We're typically not a lead investor anymore. Um, not because that we don't have, let's say, technical the capabilities to do it, um, but simply in terms of ticket size, we often, let's say, don't have that kind of weight in the round. And there's bigger investors who take the, the role of being the lead investor. And maybe one more word. Uh, first of all, Wanda Capital is part of the Wanda Group. So if you go to wanda.com and you probably kind of checked it out a few times, um, we also have a platform that covers uh, the ecosystem of what's happening in, in this region of the world. Uh, a little bit like a tech crunch for the Middle East Um and we also, let's say, promote and uh, create studies with partners, kind of, let's say, investigating certain topics of the ecosystem. So when we talk about Wanda, we not necessarily always only talk about the investment side of things, although I represent that. But Wanda in itself is a little bit bigger. And we've kind of, let's say, be a long-standing investor in the region. And in Turkey, we have a, have a few portfolio companies, so... Uh, that is that is kind of close to our heart, um, the, the entrepreneur ecosystem in Turkey. So we will uh, deep delve about the Turkish opportunities and ecosystem. <laughs> but before that, what sparked your interest in the venture capital and becoming an investor, director or uh, um, a partner in the uh, funds? A good question. Look... <clears throat> I'm, I came to the region, to the Middle East, um, permanently in 2012. That's when I relocated from Germany, because actually I'm not from here. Um, I'm actually German. And I relocated and, and moved to the region back in 2012. I kind of took the role of um, kind of also investment director. 
uh, for a corporate uh, VC in Saudi Arabia uh, called Mobile E, which is the second telco carrier. They were setting up a corporate VC unit. Uh, I was hired to build and establish that entity and manage it. And um, I did this for around three years. Um, I then kind of, let's say, joined the government entity here in Dubai, which has a co-working space and the VC unit. And I was managing that for around five years, the, the investment side of things. And since close to three and a half years, I'm actually with Wanda Capital uh, as an investment director. And coming back to the initial question, how do I got into venture capital? What do I find interesting? Um, if I jump back a little bit, so like I said, I'm German, I've grown up in, in Hamburg, I studied business administration. And in order to, to earn some money um, while studying, I worked in a small um, kind of IT system integrator company. Um, so they were kind of um, supporting and administrating, um, let's say, the corporate IT for small and medium businesses. And they had a client um, that was called Early Bird which is one of the, uh, let's say, original VCs in, in Germany. And I was wondering, what are they doing? Because it sounded interesting. And at the same time, I was uh, a kind of private investor, invested in the public stock market. This was the, And this was also the first internet bubble, so I experienced it firsthand, but as a retail investor. And I was always, let's say, interested in two or three things. One, I was interested in this idea that you become a shareholder in a company, you can become part of a company. Second, I liked uh, technology. I always, let's say, were tinkering around with computers. And um, I also find it uh, kind of interesting, uh, let's say, the topic of innovation, new things that getting started. And so these things kind of um, piqued my interest. And then in 2012, when I had the opportunity to join um, the corporate, let's say, the corporate entity in Saudi Arabia, to build up the corporate VC, this is kind of when I said, yeah, that's that's my opportunity to get into venture capital. Um, because it's it's also on, honestly not that easy to get into to venture capital unless you maybe been a founder or you maybe were, let's say, in private equity or investment banking. And I came, let's say, from consulting. So not the, let's say, the typical route, but if there's a typical, I don't know. But yeah, that's my background. And that was my interest of why I went into venture capital. And that's how it kind of German guy ends up in the Middle East doing venture capital. So, you know, um, lots of cultural differences. What are the, uh, the um, difference mindset, especially in the startup ecosystem and investment ecosystem in Middle East and let's say broad sense of Europe and in specific Germany? Uh, a good question that I might not actually even really be able to answer because I never really worked in Germany in the startup ecosystem. Um, so I cannot really compare, to to be honest. And uh, I think I can maybe talk a little bit more about the, the differences between, let's say, in general doing business in, let's say, Europe, Germany, and maybe in the Middle East. And... Um, I think there is a, is, a, is a few things. For example, in Germany, if you may set up a meeting, you would schedule it three, four weeks probably in advance. <laughs> Here, it's like someone calls you, yeah, can we meet tomorrow? And you're like, what the heck? How, how is this possible? But for example, everything is moving, let's say, much faster. Uh, there's some kind of urgency. Um, I think it's, it's, also, um, it's, it's also, for example, in Germany, it's more like what I described uh, from the top to the bottom. 
And here, a lot of stuff is kind of top-down driven. So you need to also kind of more sometimes know the right people on a more informal level to, to kind of, let's say, close a commercial deal. That is part of, of what Middle East is. You need to kind of know the people. You need to kind of, let's say, get comfortable. They with you and vice versa. So that is a, that is a difference as well. And um, yeah, for example, do, doing business here is people are very polite also. They don't necessarily say no. In Germany, it's often let's say more black and white, yes or no. Uh, but here you, you might, let's say, uh, not get a no, although indirectly your, your partner is saying, hey, we're not interested, but um, you keep doors open. So there's a bunch of things that you need to adopt to when you, when you come to the region. And I, that's, like, I think always the tricky part when you enter the market that you kind of circumvent these more informal barriers, how to, how to navigate the, the business ecosystem. And yeah, and here there, there's a few differences, especially as a, as a German at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I struggled a bit. Um, also, for example, uh, being on time, as a German, you're very much on time, five minutes ahead. Here by, but I don't want to generalize it sometimes. Here, things are a little bit more flexible, uh, which is also nice. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's a bunch of differences. And uh, if you kind of, let's say, un, kind of have them in mind, you kind of learn how to navigate and make progress. In recent years, I mean, let's say in, in uh, last decade, th there has been uh, lots of uh, successful stories popping up in uh, Middle East. Uh, some of unicorns, IPOs or acquisitions. And most of the countries in the region are looking forward to create this uh, a second Silicon Valley or uh, <laughs> oasis. Um, so what do you think about that the country's um, efforts to create the similar uh, kind of Silicon Valley culture in different geographies? When I talk specifically about the UAE and then also mm -hmm. more about Dubai, because Dubai is the main kind of tech city hub in the UAE. Um, not that Abu Dhabi is, is not there, but Abu Dhabi is, is a bit smaller than Dubai. Um, I think the government um, has understood kind of early on that it is about attracting talent, right? Every company mm -hmm. starts with a founder at the very beginning. Um, and you, you need talent, right? Because you're also not building a company alone over time you need to hire, let's say, maybe a skilled uh, developer. You need to have a skilled marketeer who can scale a business. Um, so Dubai has done a lot to attract and open up for talent from around the world. Um, if you think, for example, very recently, I think, which gave a big boost was um, how the government and the country has handled COVID. Um, Dubai was one of the first global cities that opened up very quickly um, for international travel. Um, you had also a huge kind of uh, vaccination drive. So a large chunk of the population were vaccinated that allowed to kind of open up. And uh, Dubai was then becoming a little bit the hub for freelancers, uh, people from the Web3 crypto space uh, to come to town, come to buy and sell. Like, look, this is where I can kind of, let's say, work and live and uh, can freely move. And so this, for example, was one of the things where they think about uh, the Golden Visa Initiative to attract um, talent, um, to attract investors to the country, to give them a residency of 10 years uh, under the Golden Visa Sponsorship. So there is also then a lot of government initiatives. If you think about the uh, Dubai Future Foundation or Dubai Future District Fund, if you think about Hub 71 in Abu Dhabi, um, 
there is a lot of initiatives. And like you said, the I mean, I think it's not about replicating Silicon Valley that anyhow does not really work. But you try to kind of uh, put the right seats in the ground um, that are important for an ecosystem. You need to have these different, let's say, stakeholders. You need to have, let's say, investors at multiple stages. Um, also recently, for example, another thing was mentioning as uh, public markets, um, the government also understood that there must be an exit path for companies and a vital kind of public market is, is one kind of uh, way and path to exit a company and bring it public. Um, and they brought a few kind of government entities public, like um, one is Diva, the local electricity company. Um, you have a toll gate operator went public and a few others to kind of deepen and broaden the market um, in preparation for tech companies also having an opportunity to go public. And if you switch, for example, to Saudi, um, there, there's quite a transformation going on. And there you also have initiatives like the Unicorn program. You had a company like Jazz, which went public in Saudi Arabia. Um, you have a huge talent pool in Saudi um, young Saudis who studied abroad, coming back, uh, a lot of new investors. You have Sanabel, the, the Southern Wells Fund. Um, so there is a lot that's happening. And um, you can see those kind of fruits of labor um, with, a, with a growing uh, and vibrant ecosystem. Still, for sure, we're not yet there, let's say, with the US and maybe also with main markets in Europe. But the trajectory is we're going in the right direction. And we're also going, I think, faster than others. So we can start catching up. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of positive momentum. So as Vamda Capital, you are looking for Middle East and Africa and Turkey as well. So uh, what kind of startups are you? Uh, you mentioned about the software startups. Uh, while evaluating these startups, what are the common failures? What are the mm-hmm. uh, common uh, founder mistakes that you see? Uh, frequently? Uh, maybe if we start about failures when kind of seeking capital from investors, um, mm-hmm. it still sometimes blows my mind a bit. Um, for example, how many um, founders sent you a pitch deck and there is no slide for the team? And I have then to kind of take the name from the email, go on LinkedIn, trying to figure out who, who is this person? What is he doing? Who are his co-founders? That, that, for example, simple stuff like that. Um, also, having a pitch that ready, also sometimes kind of people have reached out and um, you ask them or they meet them at, a, at an event and say, here, yeah, send me your pitch deck, please. And say, yeah, give me a few weeks and then I send it to you. And I think, okay, the moment when you approach an investor, you should be ready. Principle. Um, but coming to, to, to companies itself, uh, like we invest at this very early stage, not pre-seed, um, but seed stage. And that is still where I think a lot of things can go wrong, right? Typically, it's the phase where you have launched your first product iteration. Um, you, you still have, let's say, not achieved product market fit in that sense that you kind of really know, okay, what do I sell to whom at what price? Um, you have not really figured out uh, in terms of acquisition channels, which channels work, where do I find, uh, let's say, my customers, what's the message? So there is honestly a lot that can go wrong at the beginning and often it is um yeah it's for example that it takes longer to get the product out of the door you know the, the startups mm-hmm. who never launch always develop and then the founders are afraid of launching um but, but what is really needed you need to go out as early as possible and get feedback 
Uh, I've seen this a few times. I have seen a few companies that then have this problem. Okay, they, they cannot monetize. They, they, they had an idea, but it doesn't really work. Uh, or when it, then, when, kind of, when it then comes to scaling, that they start realizing, okay, uh, acquiring customers is simply very costly. We cannot cover that. Um, so our business model uh, is, is kind of flawed and we need to maybe pivot. And then, yeah, I mean, you also run kind of out of cash. So you need to kind of follow on fundraise. And do you have enough progress to convince more investors? And I think if we go a little bit um, back over the last couple of years, um, I think there were also mistakes made in terms of you raised that um, at high valuations or high valuation caps. And then going back to the market, finding investors was too easy. But that's a whole story. But I think these are a few points that I've seen where, where people kind of struggle struggle and fail. But I think the most important is get the product out and listen to what people are telling you, customers are telling you, and also be honest to yourself. Like, you know, some people, let's say, they hold on to something, although they, they see that the numbers are not coming and they hope for a different outcome, but it's not changing unless you change something. So how do you select uh, the startups to invest? What does your process look like? Um, so the, the vast majority of the deal flow that, that we have is kind of inbound. Um, this mm -hmm. is because we have, a let's say, strong track record, a long-standing history. Like I said, Wonder Capital is more than just Wonder Capital. We have the Wonder platform. So we are kind of pretty well established in the ecosystem. We were also involved in bigger exits that have happened, including the biggest one, Kareem. And so people kind of know us. That, that's one. We have a repu mm -hmm. kind of reputation in the market. Um, then, let's say, coming back a little bit um, to our founder, Fadi Radur, uh, maybe for, for the listeners of the podcast, uh, Fadi is the founder and chairman of, of Wanda and Wanda Capital, and he's a partner in Wanda Capital. And Fadi has been a very successful entrepreneur. Um, he started a company called Aramex, It's a logistics company. I always say it's a little bit like a FedEx uh, from the region. And so he's also very prominent, very well known. So a lot of people also kind of approach him. And he has a vast network of connections. Um, so on the deal flow side, a lot is, is inbound and not necessarily that we actively go hunting really that much. Um, then what, what is most important is the team, right? It's the people like... Um, For example, you can have a debate, single founder versus, versus let's say, uh, teams. What, what do you prefer? What do you not prefer? I think we have a preference for teams very clearly. Um, this is definitely something that we look deeply into. Um, then questions around, okay, after which market do you go? Right? What's the opportunity at hand? What could be the potential opportunity? Um, then kind of, let's say, what is the product? Where do you are? How far have you come from maybe pre-seed where you had friends and family? investing in you have you been able to kind of progress so i don't think that there is anything super secretive or that we have a secret formula kind of how do we identify uh interesting startups i think it's it's, it's doing the work and starting with the founders that that's where everything starts and stops and that's why we put a lot of emphasis on but i would not say that we have a secret formula some secret tool um, how we pick founders Simply, simply kind of, let's say, looking at what they're doing, the team, the market, the model, the traction, capital efficiency, all these things like mode. I could go on, but um, if you are to ask me what is the key thing uh, at that stage, it's the, it's the team.
Uh, and how do you decide about how much that you are going to invest in a startup? Is it a common standard or uh, does it differentiate from uh, case by case? I would say it has been a bit case by case, but to be clear, um, we, we let's say we typically invest 250,000 to 500. That was uh, is a little bit the sweet spot. And for sure, we try and aim to secure a certain ownership. Uh, but we're not kind of religiously bound and saying like, look, I need to own this percentage. Otherwise, I would never invest in your company. That's not so. There is some flexibility, but the check of, um, let's say, if you if you take, for example, 500K at a post money, uh, let's say valuation cap or post money valuation of 10, it's 5%. Um, I think we, we probably, if we invest at a seed stage, um, we would probably definitely aim for more than, than 3% if, if we invest at that stage. And then I think there's also an element when you go in later um, where we kind of have some, some flexibility. Um, but at the sweet spot, we would try to aim for 3% uh, plus in terms of ownership. Um, ideally more, but I mean, uh, all good deals are also a little bit contested. Um, so I'm not necessarily always kind of can can set the price for a round, but it's, it's, a, it's a result of the interest that the founder has for its company and the round. How involved are you with your portfolio companies after investing? Uh, I, I, I would say we, we have a decent level of involvement when it comes to kind of being close to the company, trying to understand what's happening. Uh, I would kind of lie when I say like, look, we, we have, let's say in, and kind of operational VC who kind of parachutes in and do shadowing of, of let's say, certain functions in a company. We don't do this. I'm also not, let's say, a kind of, for example, gross marketing specialist who kind of sits down with the VP of marketing and handhold and tell him what he has to do. We're not expert in in, in those kind of specific functions in a company. We are, we are more experts in terms of, let's say, when it comes to capital structuring, fundraising, um, we have knowledge in terms of governance, how do you kind of, let's say, set up a proper governance in a company. Um, we also for sure have experience that we can draw from insights from other portfolio companies that we share, let's say, insights there. We also kind of, let's say, maybe share benchmarks when it comes to numbers, when people ask, like, what's the CAC? Or a simple question also I had it last week. Uh, what do you pay in audit fees? Is the, I, I got a proposal and that sounds high. And then I can check with other portfolio companies. Um, that's something we're doing. A little bit of helping on the hiring side. Um, so we, we get profiles. We have a few headhunters, um, let's say for specific, let's say maybe in tech or marketing or sales. So, and the, and the big, I think, advantage that we have is one that is given the long-standing history that we have, we know a lot of people and we can make a, a number of introductions that can be, Think about investors, um, corporates. We are kind of close to government entities. If you think about regulated business like fintech, the, the regulators uh, here in the UAE, um, let's say ministries, free zones, and then the other suspects of the ecosystem. Let's say being at lawyers, auditors, gross marketing specialists. So I think I always say our superpower as one is the network of connections, and let's say we help to kind of connect the dots in the background. That is how I would describe what we add in addition to kind of investing in a startup. So you mentioned about the Karim example. What are the some most memorable startup pitches that you have heard? And should you share the story of Karim and a couple of 
unicorns in your portfolio earlier years? Yeah, so on, on, on Karina, actually, I cannot really comment on it because I wasn't, let's say, with Wombat at the time. I was actually investing in a competing startup. I invested in a writing service um, at that time called Easy Taxi. Now it's Genie. They still operate in Jordan and in Saudi Arabia. So I could not invest in Kareem. And um, I, I look, I think um, for, for Wanda, the Kareem pitch, um, yeah, I think it must be interesting. I think I heard the story that we saw them very early, um, but I don't think we joined that first round. And it took some time to, to if you will, correct the mistake and come on board later. Um, so that, that's it about kind of Kareem. So I, like I said, I cannot really tell you what happened there. My pitches here, um, I think there, there's always these these pitches that stand out where, um, especially those those ones where the founders come in and uh, they they tell you, let's say, I think there's always a little bit of common sense. If and what I mean is, if an e-commerce startup would come to you and then tell Burak, look, that's what we're doing. That's you have an idea how e-commerce works, and you probably also know how big the Turkish market is, but. What is always interesting if founders tell you insights that you kind of, let's say, never heard before, something where you say, oh, that, that's pretty interesting, or they really kind of show to you they're real experts of the problem that they're going to want to solve. I think this is always something that stands out. And then teams, when you have a good mix, um, I remember one, one company, I don't know, what was it? They had a commercial, a kind of commercial oriented founder, a tech founder, a marketing team. So they had a very strong team. Uh, that is something we had, a, we had a few interesting companies like Tebby, uh, BNPL, for example, in which we invested early. And Hussam was an outstanding founder. He had a company called uh, Namshi before uh, that, he, that he exited as CEO. So I think what always is nice if, if you have founders who also, I would say, who are ambitious, but are not kind of illusional um, about their plans and what, they, what they're going to build with the company. So, yeah, I think that's what I would say. Like founders who come in and, and simply blow you away with the, with the knowledge about the, the problem that they're having and, and also the drive. Um, I always say the good founders are a little bit like a train. The train leaves with you or without you. Um, and they, they also don't, let's say, do a hard sell. It's more like they have a conversation with you and tell you, why they think it's interesting an interesting problem that they solve and hopefully also interested, but they don't typically, the, I think the good founders, they don't aggressively sale you like a, like a car dealer, like, okay, you need to buy this car. Um, that, that's something that I like. You have seen hundreds of um, uh, pitch meetings and also uh, startup meetings. Uh, do you have red flags? I mean, uh, especially in the meetings or after the meetings, if you see something, then turns you off from that startup venture? I think there's a few things. I mean, for sure, one is um, if you have ethical concerns. And uh, mm -hmm. for example, if founders say like, look, um, I mean, you know, sometimes they, they have maybe raised some money, uh, let's say on a convertible, for example. And for us, it's important mm -hmm. to have information rights. And we typically also, for example, want to have most favorite nation. Um, And if the founder then says, yeah, I have not given it to those investors, but I, I'm willing to give it to you. And that is always, for me, a little bit of a red flag because I, I like, if it's the same round, everyone should be treated in the same way, on the same terms. 
And if he's doing this to me, uh, okay, next time I get screwed over by him. So that, that definitely is a red flag. I think a red flag is also um, overselling and overpromising. And then um, you, you look at the numbers and then suddenly you find discrepancies between what was pitched to you and what you see when you look at the numbers. That I would say is a, is a red flag. I think another red, uh, not a red flag, but something that always starts also a little question. Uh, when I said readiness, for example, someone pitches to you and you say, oh, I'm interested. Um, sounds, sounds interesting. I want to learn more. Do you have a data room? Do you have some, some more data that I can crack? And then they are not ready. And, you know, and then they it take, because then the question is, are they ready at all? Or, you know, why do we have this premature conversation um, if, if you're not yet ready? So there are those red flags. Or also, for example, dynamics between the founders, the co-founders, when you have the feeling like it's, it's not really, it's not really balanced or in an extreme case, we, I can remember a pitch session also where, where kind of um, the, the co-founder, the CEO was shutting down his kind of CTO and said, like, no, stop here. Let me answer that. that that's also not something that, that it, it, you start questioning what's the relationship within the team. Um, so yeah, that's a few of those kind of red flags, I would say. So we mentioned and we talked about the culture differences, but what do you think about the, what are the some unique challenges for the Middle East startups, Middle East and North African startups? Uh, one, cultural language. Like um, if, if you come here, right, it's not only, it's, a, it's also a language that goes not from left to right, but from right to left. Um, you have different dialects in the Gulf. So uh, it, it's not like that um, everyone speaks the same kind of Arabic, but look, I think bigger bigger things that you should keep in mind is um, in terms of, for example, the UAE. We have around I don't know nine to ten million um, in terms of population. It's not a huge, gigantic market, so you probably need to expand, and then you need to cross borders. And there's uh, let's say there's a new regulator. There's customs. Um, there is requirements. For example, if I talk about Saudi, probably the most important, biggest market, Saudization. So in order to, to kind of, when you come to the region, scaling, I think, a business is, is a particular challenge, kind of uh, getting going cross-border. Then also the question, where do you go in the region? So the typical playbook could be, a, let's say, maybe a Turkish startup. They would probably set up in, in the UAE, maybe in Dubai. It's the easiest to do business and it's easiest to navigate for foreigners. And you might then, let's say, think about entering Saudi after kind of, you kind of succeeded in the UAE. But then the question is already, okay, what is the next market? Because the, the neighboring countries are quite a bit smaller. Um, and then the question is, do you go from here to, to Africa? Or do you go from here to maybe Turkey? Or do you go to Pakistan? So that is a little bit the challenge. Let's say one of them, there's probably a lot more, but I think something really worth picking out. So you have also seen lots of Turkish startups uh, for for your investment deal flow. Uh, are there any differences between these geographies or are there common uh, main points that is, look like similar? And you uh, have also a great story about unicorn from Turkey. Yeah, yeah I was just about to say, I think uh, we have a very high opinion of Turkish founders, um, very, very strong teams, also <clears throat> on, on tech side. Um, That, that definitely stands out. And also the Turkish market, depending on what you're doing, is, is, is quite big. But there are the FX challenges, economic challenges. 
Um, but it's very interesting. No, we, we have invested in a few companies, and the one that you're referring to is Insider. Um, for for maybe the listeners, it's a, it's a B2B SaaS startup in terms of marketing automation. Um, it's a Turkish founding team. I think they have a huge office still in Turkey. Um, the company itself, the kind of, let's say, management relocated to Singapore. Um, but this is a big success story. It's it's um, The company has over a billion dollar in the last valuation. Um, we are early, I think we were the, one of the first, check, or the first check-in company. Um, we have um, co-investors like Sequoia Capital, um, Qatar Investment Authority, uh, very strong. And um, I think it's just another example of um, Turkish talent. And we have other companies, um, Mudanisa, I think about Tafin. Um, we are in Mati, uh, which went uh, public, um, Vault Lines. So we, we have quite a bit of companies in Turkey. And um, like I said, I think the talent is definitely something that stands out. Mm-hmm. And what are the Turkish founders' mistakes that you see uh, differentiate from, separate them from the others? <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know if I can really give a super qualified opinion here. Um, because, for example, we don't actually see many startups from Turkey coming to this part of the world. So I think for Turkish startups, it's often going more to Europe, um, not necessarily to the to the Gulf. Um, probably, I guess, Europe, sometimes you have connections. People, you know, have, uh, if I think, for example, again, a little bit, I have the German mindset. You have a large uh, diaspora of Turkish people uh, in, in Germany. Um, These are markets that are also more well known. Um, so I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm able or qualified to pick something that stands out for Turkish entrepreneurs, what they do differently, and maybe where, where they fail more often than other founders. Um, I don't think it would fail if I pick something here. But what's <laughs> so your what experience? Does it, I mean, there are lots of things to share. I would be happy to share them after our call today because... I have prepared lots of questions to ask you, but <laughs> definitely I agree with you. And there are um, uh, differences in my point of view to, with the Turkish founders and different parts of the world. And uh, of course, we have successful stories, especially in last uh, 10 years time. So most of the founders has been uh, also strongly uh, now believing in themselves that they can do as well. This is great starting point because uh, before the cold start problem, which means if you don't have the unicorn or a successful startup that you can um, associate yourself with them and um, maybe uh, they can be your um, uh, influence figure or uh, something that you can uh, make an exemplify uh, for your own startup. Uh, we have now these um Uh, great example. So the ecosystem of founders can also um, um, look these kinds of successful examples and implement uh, the successful uh, formula to indoor, in their own uh, ventures. In my point of view, so we are we have been uh, as a Turkish ecosystem uh, growing for the last um, 15 to 20 years time, and now. Uh, I think the numbers of uh, the successful startups with the valuation will increase and scale. I hopefully think that's uh, so. I'm very positive, of course. But um, in this geography, uh, always there is an urgency, as you mentioned, um, political, geopolitical, or something else. 
So I think uh, the challenges of the founders is uh, the agenda that they cannot um, manage. Uh, so if you go to the Nordics or Baltics, for example, their agenda is very uh, simple, lean and slow. But uh, in a broad sense, uh, this geography has always day-to-day urgencies. <laughs> this is, a, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, long story short, um, my uh, takeaways from uh, uh, our uh, ecosystems, in my point yeah. of view. So, um, I mean, I have also um, follow-up questions regarding to that question as well. What does your day-to-day look like as an investor director? <laughs> as an investment director, yeah. What, what does the title mean? I'm, I always say, like, um, we we are a team, and uh, the people don't work for me, but we work with me. And I always say we are a SEAL team, kind of high performance. Everyone should be, in principle, be able to to kind of, let's say, do the job from A to Z. But someone needs to be responsible if something goes wrong or if someone is maybe uh, having the experience to kind of help other people um, to acquire new skills and the job. So that's that's me. How my job looks like, <clears throat> I think not, not, not to, I always say there's two big buckets of work. One is kind of, let's say, new deals. And that is kind of, let's say, working on the deal flow, talking to founders, um, maybe going to events, um, doing doing desk research, reviewing decks, um, and, and kind of learning it and kind of also formulating a little bit of opinions about new opportunities. So this is one bigger chunk of work because we, we get deal flow and you have to handle it and you have to do justice that you look into the pitches that you get submitted. Um, this is one. This is one big chunk of work. The second big chunk, obviously, is um, portfolio management. We have a relatively large portfolio of companies. And um, as, as you know yourself, there's always something, being at follow-on funding, uh, being at, let's say, board meeting, being at reporting, uh, being at that they reach out for help, um, being at maybe there's an acquisition offer on the table, um, maybe maybe an acquisition or merger, um, like I said. Then... Um, restructuring stuff so there's always something in the portfolio that requires your attention you need to maybe also check the cap table uh, you might need to review some some legal documentation for a new funding round that the company is raising so these are, i always say from my perspective the two big buckets of work that i'm that i'm doing on a day-to-day basis and then the third bucket uh, sim- i always say a little bit simplistic everything else and everything else could could mean stuff like this for example um it could be let's say uh, maintaining and updating the website. Um, it could be, we have a lot of, let's say, um, kind of delegations. You know, for example, last week we had Menlo Park College here. The week before we had um, Harvard Business School here, um, or Howard Kennedy School, I think it's called. Um, we had London Business School. They A lot of people come to town, to Dubai, and um, they also often knock on our door and say, like, hey, look, can you tell us a little bit more about the region and the local startup ecosystem? So, that's what I mean is the third bucket, kind of everything else. And and that's kind of how I spend my time um, trying to allocate and prioritize in the right way. Not always, maybe it does not always work, but I try to improve myself and spend time on the stuff that really matters. Uh, but sometimes you get also the, the distracted. There's some, some events happening. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of when I come to office and what I'm doing. How do you like living in Dubai? I like, I like it. I, I really love it. Um, we moved here uh, permanently um, 
in 2012. So that's, that's quite some time with my wife. In the meantime, my son was born and I actually came here the first time in um, end of 2004. Um, and I saw how the city has been changing and transformed. And um, it's, it's always moving forward. I think if you've been in Dubai and you kind of not been here for two years, you probably say like, oh, I never saw that building or where's this street coming from? And so I, I love Dubai. It's, it, it's really become a global metropolitan city, um, which I think is now among probably the top 10 cities globally. You know, in, in, a, in the same kind of, let's say, uh, sentence with, let's say, London, Paris, New York, um, Tokyo, Hong Kong. Shanghai, um, yeah, Dubai, Dubai is, is really the main hub. I mean, what are the recent podcasts or books that, I mean, influenced <laughs> you or uh, which kinds of books and uh, also blog, blogs do you read recently? Uh, that's a good question. So I think on the, on the podcast side, probably a little bit the usual suspects, uh, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, Farnham Street, uh, 20 minutes VC. Um, it's, it's probably a little bit the, the usual suspect, what I'm saying. Uh, in terms of books, uh, I'm just listening right now uh, on Audible to the audiobook of uh, The Innovators uh, from Walter Isaacson. Uh, mm-hmm. Super, super interesting because it goes back to kind of how Silicon Valley actually started and the whole kind of chip industry was kind of, and super, super interesting. I, I had some ideas, but I, I knew the history starting from kind of Intel, but not what happened before. Another book um, that I really, really enjoyed, and I, I think I, I listened it now three times to it, is um, Ready Player One. If I think about it, a little bit about the metaverse, um, that is something. And then also, I, I enjoyed, for example, another book that sticked in my head is um, um, uh, Robert Greene, uh, Mastery, and also uh, Never Split the Difference from Chris Foss about negotiation. It's kind of because you deal with people, right? And and kind of, it's not that you apply black magic in terms of when you when you, when you negotiate, but um, you, you learn some some valuable things when you when you kind of let's say have conversations about let's say tough things like deal terms, right? There there is because there is two parties at the table, and you try to kind of secure your interest and protect your interest. They do they do the same, and you try to need to find a middle ground that works and. And sometimes it comes in handy if you if you kind of uh, yeah kind of realize okay what can I maybe there are some techniques I can use um, but these are these are ones and otherwise in terms of website and blogs um, I I look I I enjoy Ben Thompson he has a he has a he has a blog um, I always read tech meme um, for sure a little bit of tech crunch I Ben Evans he, he was with A16Z um, he is one. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit like, I would say, people who provide a fresh perspective on things, who challenge your thinking um, and, and give you some, some new thing, kind of what you should consider, maybe you've never thought about. Yeah, I mean, that's probably more, but to give you a few examples. What advice would you give your 20-year-old yourself? <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Um, I would clearly tell him, like, take more risk early on. Um, I think I made a, I, I, look, I, I graduated from university. I studied business administration and got into consulting. Um, and I think in, in hindsight, I should have joined a startup early on um, because you can take the risk. You're young. You can work very hard 
and you learn so much um, because you're responsible. Um, in a lot of jobs, you're not necessarily always have responsibility. You're kind of, let's say, part of a bigger team. But in a startup, especially early stage, you are in charge. You have a budget and you need to deliver. And I think that would, if I kind of meet my, my younger self, I would tell them, like, look, uh, maybe join a startup and, and learn. And you can still, let's say, go into consultancy. But being in a company and having real direct responsibility for something is, is super valuable. And look, I graduated in 2004. Um, yeah, I mean, it was the internet bubble was already gone and um, it, it would be, have been the right time to get into it. If you think about rocket internet, you know, these were also the, the days. But yeah, that's probably what I would tell myself. Take, take risk early on. Don't, don't play too safe. What is the best way to get an intro meeting with you? Um, yeah, in theory, you, you know someone who kind of, let's say, uh, let's say has my trust and vice versa and, and reaches out and says, like, I think you, you should have a, have a conversation. I mean, you know, also as, as much as I'm in, in this um, business, a lot is about uh, what we call warm introductions. Someone kind of um, puts his reputation on the line and says, Burak, have a look. I think this is a great founder. I worked with him. Um, because if I look back, cold introductions, they don't really work. They don't. And I also believe it's a little bit like a Darwin theory. Good founders will find a way to um, through an introduction. Daniel, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk uh, and getting insights from you. It was great conversation. Thank you so much, Burak.